and welcome to Wooden Spoons on CKUW 95.9 FM. My name is John Dick and I'm here with community nutritionist Mary Jane Eason to thus discuss topics of healthy living, environmental issues, what's going on in our community as well as other interesting things in this one hour show. On Wooden Spoons we recognize that all things are related and with learning and awareness we connect the dots that make up our world. Every Friday morning on Wooden Spoons we speak with guests on today's relevant issues, share nutritious recipes, and explore important topics with perspectives not found in the mainstream media. Time right now is 8 o'clock a.m. Temperature outside um, is, I believe, minus 10. And the and yeah, good morning, Mary Jane. Oh, good morning, John. It's a rather um, nice morning. It's, uh, yeah, it's been there. yeah, it's been kind of cold <laughs> out for the last couple days. Um, so it's nice to have some nicer weather. Mm-hmm. We we can't complain. We've had such a mild winter that it's more like a spring than a winter. Yeah, no the, kidding. Um, it's it's very in a way it's very disconcerting because it's not what we consider normal, and uh, we know that we're into the into the era of climate change. Of course, climate changes all the time, but it's uh, accelerating in different directions. And right, uh, right. We don't know where it's going. <laughs> anyway. Uh, this morning, I just wanted to give a rundown of of uh, what we have planned for this morning. Uh, first of all, I would like to acknowledge that uh, wood, um, at On Wooden Spoons, we are. We I want to acknowledge that we are located on Treaty One territory, the tra- traditional land and waters of the Cree, Ojibwe, Ojibwe Cree, Dakota, and Dene people, as well as the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis homeland. We also acknowledge the Show Lake Number 40 First Nation and its territory for our life-giving water. And I also want to thank um, those that I am fam- that I um, know have donated to, to Wooden Spoons on Fund Drive. I'd like to thank Debbie and Catherine, Indira, Eleanor, Michael, Laura, I believe there was a James and there was another person. Um, so I haven't got all the names yet, but we will catch up to that in the next while, in the next week or so. So thank you so much for for donating to the station um, in support of the station and for Wooden Spoons. So this morning, I just want to introduce, we have a guest this morning, and... Um, we have a few interesting announcements to make as well at the end of our program. Um, our guest this morning is Marianne Sorelli. Are you there, Marianne? I'm here. Very, oh, very good. <laughs> we want to establish that for sure. Um, so uh, I'd like to welcome to Wooden Spoons, Marianne. And um, I'll just... Nice to be back. Yes. And, and so I just want to give some information to the listeners about you. Um, Marianne Sorelli is a well-known activist and changemaker in Winnipeg. Her wide range of experience includes being a government employee, a high school guidance counselor, a member of the Manitoba Legislative Assembly of Manitoba, a community development worker and community organizer, as well as a university instructor. She has a Bachelor of Physical Education, now it's called Kinesiology, and a Bachelor of Education. She also has a Certificate in Conflict Resolution from Mediation Services. 
She has been offered by the Nellie McClung Foundation in recognition of 150 years of Manitoba history as a province. She has been a trailblazer wherever she worked. The Marianne Sorelli Trail gives recognition of her work in creating healthy communities. When elected, she was the youngest female MLA in the Manitoba legislature and led many initiatives, including rehabilitation of a former contamination site, protection of tall grass prairie, and preventing unsustainable transportation investments in order to create Transcona, Transcona Trail Association. Today we are going to talk to Marianne about her project, Reweaving Support, a, col- a collaboration for systems change, and hear about her work and upcoming events. So welcome to Wooden Spoons, Marianne. Thank you. Glad to share some about our project with you. Yes, and before we go any further, I, I recall when uh, years ago when we were recruiting for cl- for participants in our classes, you used to be at the West... West End Women's Resource Center. Uh, you had held a position. That's right. Yes, and you were always very accommodating. We never had any difficulty uh, being able to to um, you know recruit women that were interested in joining our classes, and I always appreciated that. So, just wanted to bring that up. So, anyway, well, and I did. I did post your poster about your your classes. Um, because I'm the past chair of the Wolseley Residents Association, so I put it on the Facebook page there. Oh, excellent. <clears throat> yes, because we were rather late in starting uh, with our with everything, and uh, <clears throat> so we were rushing at the last minute. Spo- the classes are supposed to start um, this coming week. Um, well, I should say next week, and I will be announcing, uh, making announcement about that as well. But thank you for putting it, uh, for posting it, Marianne. And so, no, maybe we could begin with you telling us about the project Reweaving Support and how and why has this project been initiated? Yeah, I'll start off by um, talking about the Women Healing for Change, which is an organization that's been around since the late 80s, early 90s. I was a part of that group when it first started, long time ago now. And it's still going, and it's an organization that supports women's empowerment, and they really took an interest in the North End and early child development um, a few decades ago. And they started offering uh, stay-and-play programs to support moms in the North End, and they ended up building a childcare center on Selkirk called the Little Stars Playhouse. So I was doing some work uh, hired by Women Healing for Change to help them with board development so that they could move to actually having a board that would operate this childcare center. And um, this grant became available through Women and Gender Equality Canada for feminist systems change. And it's applying uh, what what the federal government calls GBA+, which is gender-based analysis plus or intersectional gender-based analysis. So what we decided, based on the experience of the at the daycare center and with Women Healing for Change, a lot of the families or the kids at the childcare center were actually in care of CFS, and you know a lot of the families were living in poverty, and they could really see firsthand how inadequate our social safety net was. 
And we also wanted to apply this intersectional lens to the Manitoba budget so we could talk about how we need to invest in our social safety net and how, you know, all the tax cuts are costing us, that we are having to pay for the tax cuts in various ways, like we're seeing every day now on our streets with more people that are homeless, with more uh, violence, with a bigger gap between, you know, people that have enough and people that don't. So we're, we're, we, we wanted to kind of bring all of that together into a project. So tax cuts, you're talking about reduction in the taxes that we pay? Yes, so there's there's been, we have um, put together some information to show that the provincial government is losing $1.6 billion a year in tax cuts. So that's uh, 8% of the provincial budget is being given away, um, often to people that are higher income and really don't need the tax cuts. And we're saying it would be better invested into reweaving and improving the social safety net so that we're creating more equality and addressing those serious problems of poverty and homelessness and neglect of children, abuse, you know, kids going, we know we have almost 10,000 children in care of CFS. Many of them are uh, Indigenous kids. And, you know, there's we've looked at lots of reports to develop this project and our change goals. Yeah, that's a good thing to remember. Those that have money should be willing to pay, actually. And um, so tax cuts sound good, but it's 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 a it's a, um, a lure for those that are on higher income, I guess. <clears throat> anyway, um, that's a good point you brought up there. Now, the organization that you have, uh, Reweaving Support, um, has a, a wide manda- mandate. And you listed five things that were on the mandate. Do you want to tell us about that? Yeah. Um, so we are um, looking at the social safety net as a system of systems. A lot of the work that I do now is systems change work. Um, and we have a theory of change that is collaborative governance, that we're saying that if you want to change systems, you actually have to have broad collaboration between government and community stakeholders. And um, that we know that there's sort of an inertia in government that can prevent systems change. So what, and when we look at what people experience who are using the social safety net, they often are using more than just one. They are using mental health supports, rent supports, public housing, social assistance, and um, and CFS. Often they're they're engaged or they're having to navigate all these different systems. So what we are saying is we're looking at five of those areas in our project to reimagine them using that lens, looking through that intersectional gender lens. And I can talk about more of that later. So the five areas are, uh, we want to transform CFS from apprehending kids to actually preventing abuse and neglect by supporting families to prevent abuse and neglect. We want to make childcare more accessible and expand the $10 a day childcare to the families that need it. But we also want to make sure that all kids in Manitoba get the support that they need 
to have healthy child development. We know how important early child development is and how it is improved if they're involved in you know, reading programs, mother groups, stay and play, head start. So we want there to be support for parents, even if they don't have their kids in, in childcare. And in the area of income, we want to move to a basic livable income, so to transform the employment income assistance uh, program. And we want in housing to have a system that will actually meet the scale of building the thousand units a year that right to housing and other groups are saying are needed. And we also need to regulate rent. And then in finally, in the area of gender-based violence and mental health and trauma, we want to make sure that those kind of services are more available, particularly to people on low income. So currently, for example, the welfare program doesn't cover mental health therapies. It only covers prescriptions. So we want to make sure that our social safety net is trauma-informed and that people actually have access to the therapies that they need in order to uh, heal their trauma and and improve their, their well-being. So people who are traumatized and that are on low income are not given that assistance that they need to see to get support, mental health support. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We know that there's a lot happening in the field of mental health. We've learned a lot about trauma-informed, the work of Gabor Mate, and um, the work on polyvagal theory. We know that there is this mind-body connection that is recognized in various therapies, massage therapy, you know, all sorts of different therapies, but those aren't covered by Medicare and even by a lot of health insurance. And those are actually things that are more effective and actually help people deal with their trauma rather than some of the things like like having getting a prescription, which is just masking often the symptoms um, and has have lots of side effects. So we want to see all the research that there is out there starting to be applied in our social safety net programs, particularly around mental health, and for people to start having access to the therapies that are actually going to help them. And a lot of those are also culturally safe or culturally appropriate for First Nations and Indigenous people to be able to have access in, in to their Um, traditional cultural practices and when I worked at West Central I really saw how women when they started to reclaim their cultural identity and reclaim doing their traditional practices that they really changed their lives and turned their their lives around Um, from going to ceremony from doing sweat lodges from doing all these different things that have been important in their cultural first you know for centuries Um, and so that's what we're talking about, but also Chinese medicine and other cultural practices that um, have have really good effect on helping people with trauma. You're listening to CQW ninety five point nine FM. My name is Mary Jane Eason, and our guest this morning is Mary Ann Sorelli, and I'm with John Dick. And um, uh, yeah, so um, we're talking to Mary Ann Sorelli about. Um, about the work that she's doing. And continuing on, would you explain the term intersectionality and why an understanding of intersectionality is helpful? So that's kind of a, um, 
an interesting word there. <laughs> yeah, our Reweaving Support project is called Reweaving Support Collaboration for Systems Change. And we want to look at the social safety net and the budget through this intersectional lens. So it it was developed first by, uh, I forget her first name, Crenshaw, she's a black US feminist. And it's recognizing that there are interlocking and co- compounding disadvantages. That if someone is low income, plus they have a disability, plus they are a single parent, they're going to have more disadvantages and those disadvantages are intersectional. Or if they are, are Indigenous and they face a lot of uh, systemic discrimination. Um, and it's also about understanding privilege. So the notion of privilege kind of turns discrimination on its head. And it starts to look at how being white or male or cisgendered straight is an advantage and gives you unearned privilege or advantages that aren't recognized in systems that we have, but there actually are assumptions and biases that are based on those systems being designed by people who have unconscious privilege or bias. So the idea of intersectionality is starting to uh, kind of expose and make those things visible and show how there are these interlocking or compounding uh, areas of identity and class that create advantage and disadvantage. And I guess Does that, that make sense? Yeah, and I think you, uh, there are diagrams that you have on your website, or I think I came across where you have circles that are, are intersecting each other. So one circle is yes. part of another circle, part of another circle. So you get all these different factors that are going to be affecting individuals. In you know, and in terms yeah, it can get demonstrated as a wheel or a, or like a Venn diagram that you're describing, where if you have many of these different intersecting um, characteristics, then you're going to be likely to be more marginalized or on the outside, you know, experiencing social exclusion, experiencing poverty, then if you have fewer of those intersecting uh, characteristics. Mm -hmm. The more intersectionality, the the more that you are affected by different factors, as that was what you're saying, it makes it more difficult. Yeah, but you can also use the concept of intersectionality to look at these systems, because like I was describing before, all these five areas of the social safety net programs offered by government also, you know, can either intersect well or not well. So we want to see better uh, policy coordination and to look at this social safety net and the budgeting as a system of systems so that people aren't just looking at the individual, they're looking at the context and they're looking at the design and the structure so we're, we're using a tool that I designed. Um, I actually designed this when I was in MLA, and I was thinking about how do we make industries more sustainable? So I was the environment critic for my first term. So I started thinking about what are the powers that government have? Government, you know, they make laws. Governments 
tax and spend. They have budgets. They they can um, allocate resources. They have staff. They do programs and services. Governments can also educate the public through, you know, different marketing campaigns, bus benches, you know, all these billboards, pamphlets, websites. And governments also do governance. They actually, they can do governance in a way that's very collaborative and inclusive, or they can be more autocratic and more, um, less democratic. And, and that's the same for public engagement. So in the project, what we're doing is we've already created what we're calling a baseline uh, map of the system where we've shown how the system is now in all those different areas, the laws, the budget, the, the, the staffing. And what, we're, what we've been doing now is engaging with all these different community stakeholders and saying, how would we like this system to be? What do we need to change in terms of the laws, the budgeting, the programs, in order to apply this intersectional lens and other lenses like trauma-informed, reconciliation, healthy public policy, all these things that we know will make things better and more fair if we apply that to the social safety net through this tool called the change matrix, we're re-envisioning these systems. So that's what we're be, we've been doing for the last um, number of months of the project. And uh, on March the 22nd, we'll have an event to present that new vision to bringing together all the community groups that have been working on this and all the people. Um, and to talk about more, like let's create this powerful new shared vision for these systems. So who who you're doing a presentation on March the twenty second, and who who is this? Uh, who is involved in in go, who who is going to be the audience of this presentation? It's not a presentation. It's going to be very engaging. We'll do some presenting, but it's going to be about getting them and engaged and discussing uh, the the areas of the social safety net. So the target for that is going to be people who already are working in community-based organizations who are working to address poverty, to end homelessness, to address violence and abuse, all the different groups out there, activists, change makers. Um, we are going to be inviting people from government as well, um, but it's open to anybody. Uh, but the people that have been working on this so far are people who are active in um, areas of the five areas child care cfs you know working yes, you to would, address you would probably crisis. be inviting al weeb i guess you're familiar with him of um he has i've talked to al mm -hmm. yeah i've talked to al um al is definitely welcome to come i've invited him to connect on the project what we found with this project you know one of the things we were going to talk about is this notion of collaboration and our theory of change for this project isn't just policy advocacy it's not protest or doing lobbying one of the things that we're going to be organizing for is a collaborative table or structure with government in each of the five areas so one of the outcomes that we want to achieve is the government to agree that in order to do this work, it really takes an all-hands-on-deck approach to really, you know, if we want to make some of these fundamental changes in, for example, transforming CFS to be more proactive and preventative. So 
Um, there are small projects that are doing that now to show that if you support families, you can prevent them from having their children apprehended and help them to develop you know, healthy families. So what we want to do is systematize that. We want to broaden that, scale it up. And in order to do that, we need to have a collaboration between government and community-based organizations. So what we found, though, is people are working like in their projects already, and it's hard for a lot of people to go from working at that individual level where they're helping individual people not get evicted or find housing or get food to go to looking at the systems. So it's how do we move to that upstream thinking to prevent people from being homeless in the first place? So that's what our project is focused on. And a lot of people are focused on just helping individuals survive day to day right now. Mm -hmm. And our project is much more sort of looking at the social determinants of health and upstream thinking. So um, that's one of the, the, the big things that's different about this project is we are wanting to look at the bigger picture of, uh, you know, even looking at how the government invests money. And that's why I brought the tax cuts up at the beginning. We've, we've actually costed with each of the areas of tax cuts, like the, the eight, over $800 million cut from income tax, $300 million cut from the, the uh, education property tax credit, you know, all the others, the sales tax cut, We've costed how if we spent each of that amount of money by investing it in people, the impact that we could have. So, for example, if we invested the money from the income tax cut, we could easily fund the repairs and the rent subsidy for 2,000 Manitoba housing uh, units that are currently vacant. So we've done a lot of work to try and show how we could use money differently and that would create more equality and reduce poverty and homelessness and mental health issues and all these things. So it's a, it is a big picture kind of project. Yeah, and as you were pointing out, the people that are actually helping people find find places to live, they're, they're like they are the on-the-ground workers uh, but they also have a part to, to play in this because they, uh, you know, they're dealing, they're doing very important work and they should, uh, you know, it, they can get a better understanding of the bigger picture. And, you know, so I think... Yeah, they can. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting, though, because with some of the people that I've talked to over the last... Uh, couple of years of working on this um, I remember talking to one person that was working in CFS and I said to them if you were the minister responsible what would you do how would you change the system and they said to me you know I've never thought about that because I'm so engaged in just trying to help these individual kids I'm not thinking in terms of yeah. how would I change the system to yeah. actually make it so that kids weren't suffering the way that they are yeah so that's kind of what i mean but all those people that have the expertise of being system navigators those are the people that are involved in the project and then we want we want more of that experience 
not just the people that have lived experience of being in those systems themselves, but those system navigators. And that's what I did at West Central for eight years is I help people navigate all those systems and I help people, uh, other inner city women become advocates. I mentored advocates. So that is really important. But then we also did a lot of work on developing the EI Advocates Network and developing the the uh, rental network so that we're applying our knowledge to changing the systems. So I now call that navigating systems for systems change, that we're not just navigating systems to maintain the status quo. We want to navigate systems so that we're leveraging influence to change those systems that are actually doing harm to people like CFS and EIA, mm-hmm. which are very punitive and inadequate systems uh-huh yeah that's uh, that's um a very important step for sure that that is uh, uh beginning the communication understanding going through the whole system there um and the project re- um reweaving support introduces project com uh concepts one of them being intersectional gender-based analysis do you want to explain what that entails and what areas would this analysis be applied to intersectional gender-based analysis (laughs) yeah so that's what i was explaining earlier Mm -hmm. when i was talking about this concept of intersectionality Um, So the federal government, through Women and Gender Equality Canada, they have a mandate to actually apply looking at through this lens, this to look so it's not biased and it's not making assumptions that are exclusionary or discriminatory, racist, classist, uh, you know, discriminating against people with disabilities. So we're, we're, we're applying that lens to understand how the social safety net impacts people differently. I can give you an example. So um, there's a lot of, and and West Central has done a whole gender-based analysis of homelessness services um, because there's a lot of women when they're homeless, they don't wanna go to a shelter because they feel the shelters aren't safe. So they are more likely to couch surf to, you know, just stay with friends. Um, And then in the system right now, if you're a woman, you can't go to a gender-based violence shelter. If you're homeless, you have to show that you're experiencing intimate partner violence or domestic violence. So on the one hand, our social safety net, the, the homeless shelters that are there, Women aren't feeling safe there, but then when they want to go to a, a, a shelter for gender-based violence to feel safe, they're, they're not accepted. And why are so they these, accepted? I because think. they're specifically supposed to be for women that are experiencing intimate partner violence or domestic violence. So if you're a woman that's homeless, you're not safe, but you can't go to a shelter that's designed for intimate partner violence unless you can prove you're currently experiencing an abusive relationship a violent relationship Uh so that's an example of how like it's not working right for for a lot of women and i have a very clear memory of working with a woman when i was at with central who was older and wore a sari you know was a newcomer and taking her to the shelter um, 
one of the homeless shelters into this room of men who were majority of the other people there. It was just such a stark contrast and experience of her feeling like I don't belong here. <laughs> I don't. Oh, I'm not going to be oh, safe. For sure, that would be very intimidating. So, you know, it was. It was um, that, and that's her. You know, she had. She was a woman. She's a newcomer. She's uh, Muslim, and was homeless. And was what were the options for her? So that's what we're talking about in this project and how to address it. Hmm. Yeah, that would be absolutely horrific for a Muslim woman, you know, given the culture they come from, to be placed in, in a shelter with only men. That, that would be inconceivable. Because often, you know, there's they have very strict rules in many Muslim countries about what is proper and what isn't and so on. And, and um Anyway, it's um, I have had quite a few Muslim people in my classes over the years, and um, anyway, that is uh, certainly not a good solution there, what you just described. Um, and your project also identifies the concepts of capacity building and shared vision. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, so capacity building is really, it's broader than just skill building. Like I use this acronym TASK, T-A-S-K, and it's kind of a teacher thing. But T is for tools, A is for attitudes, S is for skills, and K is for knowledge. So we're building capacity in all those areas for doing this work, for doing collaborative systems change work. So we are using a variety of different tools. I described one, this change matrix, which is the tool that we're using to map and understand the systems. It's also a knowledge translation tool, which means we're taking recommendations from government reports or community reports, and we're translating that into the systems, into policy and laws, program design, governance we're we're trying to actually implement the recommendations and this project in some ways it's kind of like we're doing the work of government in the sense that you know community groups will often make a report and they'll present these recommendations and we know that a lot of those reports aren't implemented there's a lot of reports that are really good and they're sitting on a shelf so our project is saying We don't want to just make more recommendations. We want to look at how do we implement all these reports that are already been done and how do we actually create a vision for that? So looking at the mechanics of how government works. um, And that's why we're saying too that it needs to be collaborative because the community has so much expertise, has so much experience. And government funds all these community-based agencies and then often doesn't listen to them. So, you know, even from my experience when I was in MLA, because I have a health and community development background, I always worked with the community. And I will often would say, you know, things change for the better when the community is sitting at the table. So what we're trying to do with this collaboration for systems change and building capacity for that is to have government and community be able to work together. And 
there are some good examples of that. Um, but I think we can do it even better and do it more on, on all of these five areas. So we're, what we're going to be doing is urging government not to just have an advisory committee on childcare, for example, but to actually have a working group where they're working with the Manitoba Child Care Association and other advocates and the educators in that are training childcare workers that are that are going to be working with all the directors that work in different childcare centers, working with parent coalitions to to do this work collaboratively. That seems so... Hopefully that makes sense, too. Oh, yeah, it it seems a very holistic way of going about things and and effective, too, because community is so important in, you know, keeping government in touch with what the reality out there. And uh, do you want to just mention any upcoming events that you will be offering to the public? And um, and you also uh, do some. Uh, you offer pro- you off uh, your project offers organizations uh, um, that you help organizations as well to engage in the services you offer. Do you want to comment on that as well? Yeah, we're not really offering services. We're more offering engagement, and we're using these different tools. Uh, for movement building, reversing austerity, investing in Manitobans, most vulnerable Manitobans, and being able to demonstrate that that's a, there's a real huge return on investment, a social return on investment. You know, if if we could have a, a two in two terms of government, if we could do what we're talking about in this project, we could raise a generation of kids that are not growing up in poverty or in abuse and violence. And that would have a huge transformation effect on down the road, less money spent in justice, in CFS, in mental health, in all sorts of other areas. So that's the vision, you know, we're, we're trying to engage people. We're calling it a powerful shared vision if we have more people that share that vision. So this project is really comes from my own experience. Like I designed the project and it comes from my experience, not only as a health educator, but working in community development and working in politics. So it's kind of, I work at the intersection of those things. And, um, you know, we don't just want to have ad hoc uh, consultation with government. Now we want to have this collaboration. So we are having an event tomorrow um, if people are really interested in CFS and mental health and gender-based violence, there's an event tomorrow from 10 till 2. It's online. We're calling it the Healing for Change Summit. And there's a link on our website. If you just go to reweavingsupport.ca, um, there's a link under the events page where you can register. And then our, our big event will be March the 22nd. Um, that will be in person. And the link is also on our website. There's a poster. And that's where we'll be presenting this powerful shared vision and getting uh, more engagement, feedback, uh, input on that. And um, we have applied for another two years of funding through Women and Gender Equality Canada to con- continue this because once we have this you know new vision for these the social safety net in these five areas that's when we really want to build uh support and engagement with government so we we don't want this to end um uh this with this phase one we hopefully will be on 
continuing in phase two of the project. Well, thank you so much, Marianne, for joining us. And we'll have to follow up uh, with you on what takes place, uh, you know, maybe after March the 22nd. And uh, thank you for sharing all this, uh, your uh, your knowledge and concepts and ideas, uh, which have been so helpful and are based on your own experience and training and education and so on. I really thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. All the best. Okay. So, John, Take care. Maybe, okay. Uh, maybe we have a song that. Um... Uh, yes, we do. I'll Fly Away by Jillian Welch. I'll put it on right now. I'm just going to go to the washroom. <laughs>
Ron. Now moving on to a second part of our program. Time is moving by so quickly. I have. I want to um, provide two announcements and also um, a recipe. Also, if there is time, which is running out, <laughs> I will maybe provide some information on... Um, on uh, genetically modified organisms, which is is an issue that we need to be informed about and are not being informed about by the mainstream for sure. Anyway, I have an announcement. One is from Evelyn, and um, it is very short notice, but it is about an exhibit at the Martha Street Studio, uh, which shows interesting nature-themed woodcut prints. So Martha Street Studio is presenting Printed Flight, a solo exhibition by Lisa Mathias, who comes from Alberta. Printed Flight explores the worlds of songbirds, insects, and landscapes through the media of woodcut printmaking, ecological soundscape, and sound, and stop-motion animation. The exhibition dates are... March the 1st to April the 5th, 2024. The opening reception is Friday, March the 1st, from 5 to 8 p.m. The artist talk, Saturday, March the 2nd, um, 1 p.m., both in person and live stream via Zoom. This talk is free to attend and open to the public. So... More information about this upcoming exhibit can be found at um, maybe uh, maybe I should just give the website. You can also explore Lisa's other works at www.lisamathias.com or Instagram, Lisa underscore Matthias underscore art. And uh, Martha Street Studio is the Manitoba Printmakers Association, Inc., Manitoba's only printmaking artist-run center, studio, and gallery. It supports innovation in local, national, and international print-based art and works with other unique organizations towards a common goal of enriching the lives of Manitobans through the production and dissemination of the printmaking arts. Martha Street Studio is at 11 Martha Street, just north of the Manitoba Museum. Also want to announce some cooking classes uh, being offered at Mary Jane's Cookie School. Uh, learn the basics in vegan and vegetarian cooking and make delicious, wholesome dishes using vegetables, legumes, grains, nuts, and seeds, along with spices and herbs. Gluten-free options are included, and participants take home what they prepare. The dates are Tuesday evenings, March the 5th, 12th, 19th, and 26th, and the time is 5.30 to 8 p.m. To register, call Mira Jean's Cooking School at 204-775-2522 or email mjcookin, without a G, at mymts.net. The location is at 252 Arlington Street, just south of Portage Avenue. There will also be a workshop, Indian Cooking with Nandita, Nandita, or Nandita, 
tried to pronounce her name properly. Uh, learn how to make palak paneer with fragrant basmati rice and veggies and coconut chutney, followed by a sit-down traditional dinner. And that's happening on Saturday, March the 9th. From 1 to 4 p.m., the cost is $60. To register, call Mary Jane's Cooking School, 204-775-2522, or email mjcookin at myMTS.net. Again, this is at 252 Arlington, just south of Portage Avenue. So, um, I just wanted to share... Um, before we go to our recipe, I wanted to share um, some information that comes from Canadian Biotechnology Action Network, um, CBAN. And uh, this, uh, this, uh, this uh, network uh, brings together 15 organizations to research, monitor, and where and, um, and raise awareness about issues related to genetic engineering in food and farming. So CBAN in, uh, members include farmers associations, uh, environmental and social justice organizations, and regional coalitions of grassroots groups. And um, so the um, coordinator uh, of CBAN that sends information of, to the public is Lucy Sherratt. And we had interviewed Lucy Sherratt a number of years ago, several times. Anyway, the headlines say, Europe closer to deregulating gene-edited GMOs, genetically modified organi- uh, organisms, which is a term that, that applies to um, a scientific method used by Monsanto, now Bayer, in which genes from, well, it used to be, genes from one species would be transplanted into another. A tomato might have a transplant of fish genes in it. Uh, That came under heavy criticism and has been the cause of many allergic reactions. If you happen to be allergic to fish, for example, and you're eating a tomato with a fish gene, you might have a problem. And since the inauguration of these genetic, genetically modified plants, uh, I have read um, articles showing there has been an, a great increase in all kinds of issues, allergies, and diseases. One of the big problems with genetic genetically modified organisms is that they use glyphosate which is actually incorporated into plants so that the plants are toxic to insects doesn't sound very good anyway so now they don't I think they have moved away from um, trans uh, from crossing crossing the species barrier Uh, after all nature does not do that and who, <laughs> it seems very foolhardy that we would even try to do something that nature never does. So they are now uh, genetically modified organisms are now plants that have genes inserted from the same plant um, moved around or taken out or something to that effect. I'm, I'm just sort of giving my understanding of it. So... 
there was a, there's been a lot of controversy over it, and Canada has deregulated uh, this um, technology. So uh, I'll just talk more about that in a minute. So the fight over the future of GMO regulation rages on. On February the 7th, the European Parliament endorsed a proposal to remove regulation from many gene-edited edit- or gen- genetically modified plants. The final decision now rests with the European Union Council, which is comprised of ministers of member states of the European Union. Meanwhile, the South African Minister of Agriculture has taken the opposite decision, ensuring government risk assessments for all gene-edited GMOs. Risk assessments. Genine editing techniques are tools of genetic modification slash genetic engineering. In Europe, they are referred to as new genome techniques or NGTs. The biotechnology industry is lobbying governments around the world to remove government oversight from the introduction of these new genetically modified organisms so that companies can put them on the market without any government safety assessments. That would all be, this is my commentary, Uh, this would be very uh, advantageous to this corporation, Monsanto, now Bayer, if all these regulations could be um, just removed. The Canadian government removed pre-market regulation from most gene-edited plants and foods in 2022 and 2023, but these decisions remain in question as long as Europe and other key trading partners can continue to trigger government regulation and labeling. So if we want to trade with Europe and we don't have any regulation and the Europeans are saying that they are having regulation, uh, then that's going to, uh, then if you want to trade, you have to have regulation. The, uh, the European Union Parliament voted in favor of deregulation of gene-edited plants and foods, but unlike in Canada, it voted to maintain traceability and labeling. So that is a good, a good thing. Resistance continues around the world. More information and updates are posted on CBAN's campaign page, which is www.cban.ca slash no exceptions. So there's a lot of issues around this. Removing regulation from new gene-edited GMOs in Europe is based on incorrect arguments that many gene-edited plants are equivalent to plants that are not genetically engineered. Now, this is one of the things that Monsanto has and Bayer has been promoting. They are the same. They, they, they say that the plants are the same, but they are not the same. And um, so Canadian regulators argue that, lar- that largely the presence of foreign DNA is what distinguishes GMOs that need regulation from those that do not. So these regulatory categories have no scientific basis. They're, 
they've always had been trying to. I've heard people talk. I've heard Monsanto officials talk and really saying it's the same. But it isn't the same because the change in genes has an effect on the whole plant. It has an effect on a number of things. Um, so this is, uh, I, I won't continue at this point because I think we're going to be running, running out of time, time and I do want to share a recipe. So I have a, a, a vegan recipe to share, a vegetarian recipe. And um, let me just find it. It's, um, it's a, ro- a broccoli and a red pepper um, stir-fry. Now, one of the things we should remember when we're buying certain foods, there's some foods that have higher pesticide residue than others. And I know, unfortunately, unfairly, wrongly, (laughs) organic foods is more expensive, unaffordable for a lot of people. And that is a sad commentary on our society that that agriculture depends on uh, big ag agriculture for, for their for their food, uh, agriculture that is just mostly genetically modified. However, that is that's where we're at. However, there are some regulations that for peppers. Uh, peppers are one of the foods that have the highest <coughs> residue, <coughs> pesticide residues, <coughs> and uh, so are t- strawberries. And I had an experience, a bad experience with strawberries myself, where I, <laughs> I think it got poisoned by some pesticides on strawberries that came from Mexico one time. <clears throat> However, peppers and strawberries, I have the highest residues of pesticides, so try to buy those organic. Okay, broccoli and red pepper with lime, ginger, soy sauce is the, is the name of the recipe. You need a tablespoon of sesame oil and two garlic cloves minced, two large red bell peppers cut lengthwise into one quarter inch thick strips, five cups of chopped broccoli, florets and stems, finely chopped green onions, white and green parts, and one teaspoon of sesame seeds. And the sauce, you take two cloves of garlic minced and a quarter cup of seasoned rice vinegar and two tablespoons of low-sodium soy sauce, one and a half tablespoons of freshly squeezed lime juice, and two teaspoons of grated ginger root, ginger root, a half a teaspoon of granulated natural cane sugar is optional, and a dash of hot sesame oil <clears throat> and uh, to taste. You... you um, the sauce in a in a bowl mixed together, the garlic, the rice vinegar, the soy sauce, lime juice, ginger, sugar, and if using a hot sesame seed oil in a large nonstick skillet at or wok, heat the sesame seed oil over medium heat for 30 seconds, add the garlic and cook, stirring for one minute until fragrant but not browned. Stir in the pepper, broccoli, and green onion. Reduce heat to low Cover and cook occasionally for 8 to 10 minutes or until broccoli is tender but not limp. Add the sauce and stir well. Reduce heat to low and cook for 2 minutes or until hot. Transfer to a serving bowl and sprinkle with sesame seeds. And you can add other ingredients if you like. Um, anyway, John, <laughs> I, how are we doing for the time? And We have one minute left. 
Okay. So yeah, I'll just um, close off here that you have been listening to Wooden Spoon, sponsored by Mary Jane's Cooking School on CKUW 95.9 FM.